As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Major League Soccer season starts this weekend. Jeff Reuter and John Muller are here to talk about some big storylines ahead of opening day. There's also a quick recap of how the world of soccer has been impacted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Alex Admos from The Athletic, and this is Soccer Every Day for the weekend of February 25th. As you no doubt have seen, Russia has started invading Ukraine. There are obviously so, so, so many impacts to this that are magnitudes more important than soccer. But our job here at The Athletic is to cover sports and soccer in particular on this show. And the fact is that that this news has already had a massive impact at the time of recording on the sport that we all watch and enjoy. In European club competitions, The Athletic understands that UEFA will move the Champions League final, which was due to be held in St. Petersburg. This isn't official yet, and no replacement venue has been determined at the time of this recording. There will also be massive impacts in the international game. On the men's side, Ukraine are in a World Cup playoff with Scotland, and Wales and Austria are on the other side of that bracket. Also, Russia is set to host Poland, with Sweden and the Czech Republic on the other side of that bracket. Russia would technically be the host country if they were to win that first game against Poland. However, the National Soccer Federations of Poland, Sweden, and the Czech Republic have sent a joint letter to FIFA and UEFA saying they refuse to travel to Russia for those games. The Scotland Football Association is in talks with UEFA about Ukraine's trip to Glasgow at the moment. There isn't much soccer happening in Ukraine for obvious reasons that the future of that game remains to be seen. UEFA will also discuss Russia's involvement in the 2022 Women's European Championship. There are also, of course, ownership and commercial impacts to this news. Schalke has removed Gazprom, which is Russia's state-owned energy company, as its shirt front sponsor. Instead, the shirt front will just read Schalke 04. And in British Parliament, The Athletic is reporting that ministers have heard that Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich, who is of course Russian, should be, quote, no longer able to own a football club in this country, end quote. This is obviously a very fast-moving and developing story. Check back to The Athletic for more updates that are a little bit more maybe up to date than these ones. We have a live blog that is linked in the show's description, which you can see pretty much wherever you're listening. 
And despite all of that, games across Europe are still on this weekend at the time of this recording. And as hard as it is to transition away from that particular story, the fact is there are a bunch of interesting games for you to keep an eye on this weekend, including, yes, the start of MLS. We can just sort of go uh, sequentially through these. This isn't going to be as involved as my usual weekend preview with Brooks. But there are a bunch of games worth mentioning here. First, today on Friday in Syria, two teams that are relevant in the title race. They're at the top of Syria right now, and they've been going back and forth there for months now. At 12.45 p.m., AC Milan plays Udinese on Paramount+. And at 3 p.m., Genoa plays host to Inter Milan, also on Paramount+. Plus. Those are two really, really big games in the Serie A title race today. On Saturday, going sequentially through the day at 7.30 a.m., Leeds United versus Tottenham Hotspur. That's a good one. That'll be on USA Network. At 9.30 a.m., you can switch over to Bayer Leverkusen and Armenia Bielefeld. That'll be on ESPN+. If that really isn't striking your fancy, then you can move over to Manchester United versus Watford on USA Network. And then at 12.30 p.m., Everton versus Manchester City on Peacock. The Premier League title race is now actually kind of a title race. Manchester City is only three points ahead of Liverpool. Uh, However, if you don't have Peacock and you can't watch that game, a couple other good ones to take place in that noon 12.30 window at 12.30 p.m. Rayo Vallecano versus Real Madrid on ESPN+. At noon, Empoli versus Juventus on Paramount+. And at 12.30 p.m., Eintracht Frankfurt versus Bayern Munich. That is on ESPN+. Then, of course, the MLS action starts. A few games for you to keep an eye on. These are just selections by me because they seem entertaining. If I didn't cover your team here, it's nothing personal, I promise. Uh, 3.30 p.m. Eastern, Los Angeles FC hosting the Colorado Rapids. That'll be on two Ana. At 6 p.m., DC United versus Charlotte. That'll be Charlotte FC's first ever game. That'll be on ESPN+. And at 7.30 p.m., Portland Timbers hosting New England Revolution. Of course, last year's MLS Cup finalists versus last year's Supporter Shield winners. That'll be a good one. And it's on Big Fox, Fox Network, at 7.30 p.m. On Sunday at 11.30 a.m., the League Cup final, Chelsea versus Liverpool. That'll be on ESPN+. Plus. Always worth watching a trophy game. And then a trio of good games in the 3 o'clock, 2.45 p.m. Uh, area. At 3 p.m., Barcelona versus Athletic Bilbao on ESPN+. Plus At 2.45 p.m., Lazio versus Napoli, Napoli being another team involved in the Serie A title race. That is on Paramount+. Plus. And then also at 3 p.m., Atlanta United versus Sporting Kansas City on FS1. Those are two entertaining teams uh, that are running up against two other entertaining teams in Europe. Uh, other action in MLS at 5 p.m., the LA Galaxy hosts New York City FC, of course, the defending champions. That'll be on ESPN+. And at 8 o'clock, Seattle Sounders hosting Nashville SC. Two really good teams, and Seattle obviously making a lot of renovations to their team over this year, so it'll be interesting to see just how good they end up being. They'll end up being on ESPN+, that broadcast will. Uh, There's plenty more to come on MLS Storyline, so let's go ahead and send it over to John Muller and Jeff Reuter. Okay, so uh, MLS is back this weekend. Again, the tournament. I, that I, I, <laughs> can, can I just say that like naming the tournament that has ruined every new season for me? Because I'm just like thrown back to thinking about bubbles and thinking about it, Nashville and Dallas. And honestly, it was so brilliant though because like I hated the tournament at the time, but now every time I hear the phrase MLS is back, I get all like weirdly nostalgic for the pandemic. <laughs> right. It's bizarre. For, 
for the phrase of the pandemic when everyone was kind of taking it seriously. And yeah, you had to deal with like covers of Imagine, but beyond that, <laughs> at least people were trying to take it seriously. Yeah. And, but this know, time MLS is back in like in like a regular way. We're we're having a regular season just like two, three months after the season ended, and uh, a lot has happened. I mostly write about the Premier League and Champions League these days, but I'm a big MLS fan. Uh, it's really hard as even a big MLS fan to like keep track of all the stuff that goes on in this league. Fortunately, it's- that is your job. So I'm here today to ask you what I've missed, what I should be paying attention to, what's happening in this crazy league that has God knows how many teams these days. I think they made it an even number this year, right? For once, for, for one year anyway. So they, yes, Charlotte FC will be the 28th team. Um, your fortunate reality of me covering every team in this league is my unfortunate reality of having to try to figure out how to cover every team in this league when um, it's difficult. I mean, like I will say the, the lack of visibility with preseason, I'm not saying that there's anything that would have been earth shattering to see in an MLS preseason game, whether they're playing MLS versus MLS, MLS versus USL, local, college, you name it. But yeah. at least you get a sense of, you know, if I'm going to be talking about a new head coach or I'm going to talk about Bob Bradley taking over Toronto, at least I can see how homegrown players are going to be utilized, what Michael Bradley's role is going to be, how the defense is going to be set up. Um, so there's something to go off of instead of just assuming this is how he played in L.A., this is how he coached in Swansea, and so it must be some hybrid of the two. Um, that makes it difficult. The The lack of local coverage in some markets makes it very difficult to keep a finger on the pulse as well. But yeah. um, nevertheless, <laughs> here nevertheless. we are with one <laughs> big question. We persist. That's right. So we have one big question. This is a piece that will be on The Athletic by the time you listen to this podcast on Friday. Uh, one big question for every single team paragraph or two about why it matters it should be a really good way just to as you're watching these teams understand what you are looking for um last year this feature uh the questions were actually very good rereading it i was i was reading because i did the same exercise with 27 teams last year and was kind of reading it with one eye closed hoping that they weren't an embarrassment but uh, they were very very accurate so highly recommend it but we're going to cover five of them right now and then um you know what? I, I actually I want to start with the six since you brought it up because I'm super curious about this Toronto rebuild. You know, yeah. Toronto is always like one of the league's biggest spenders. Uh, for years, they were you know kind of a perennial contender. Last year, they were just a complete train wreck. Yeah. So they just cleaned house, right? They they bought Rob Bob, Bob God, I can't say his name. They brought Bob Bradley in from <laughs> Brad LAFC. Bobley is here. Yeah. <laughs> Bob Bob is in Toronto. And Insigne is going to be in Toronto, which is incredible. I can't believe that MLS is getting this dude at 30 years old. He's going to wreck everybody. But right now, they like don't have any other players, right? Like, What's going on with that rebuild? What is this team going to look like? Yeah, they have gotten to the point of the rebuild where they have cleaned out either players who are not going to play a role for the next three seasons. So that's, you're looking at an Omar Gonzalez, who is already getting kind of phased out of the back line. And now he'll be taking a probably a more rotational role with Bruce Arena's um, New England Revolution. It is interesting to watch players go, like, leave the opportunity of a Bob Bradley team for a Bruce Arena team. That just, for some reason, that feels important to me as a longtime American soccer follower. But it's like, I'm sure it's like it's two not. national team coaches playing pickup <laughs> ball, you know? It's like, right, I'll take exactly. Josie over here. Right. And that's the other one, right? Is, is Josie Altidore, where understandably that relationship was ready um, to move on. I, I think that Josie did some tremendous things. I, I think that time history will look back on Josie's time in Toronto more fondly than I think people are in the present moment, given the hamstring issues he's had lately, the ineffectiveness at times that he's had when he has been playing. Um, Certainly some clashing of heads with head coaches in recent years also, but I think that on the whole, his legacy in Toronto will be of leading them to MLS cup of getting them past Montreal of getting them past Seattle. So 
Um, I think history will look back on him fonder, but he's not there. Uh, overshadowed in all of this, Mark Delgado, who had done very well with Jonathan Osorio to keep that midfield working with Michael Bradley. Um, that was a very um, effective trio of midfielders, maybe not a progressive enough trio. I don't think you necessarily saw someone who's going to be creating the chances that, say, Victor Valdez had um, at yeah. the height of this most recent dynasty. So I think that they were looking for someone who could pull the strings alongside Pozuelo a little bit more. Um so it's a little top-heavy. Jefferson Soteldo did not work out on the wing. They did a straight swap for Carlos Osaito, which I thought was a really good pickup. Um, mm-hmm. Should should give them a good leading center back. I mean, someone who on talent should be one of the top four, three or four center backs in Major League Soccer this year already, um, if he can make the adjustment to Toronto quickly enough. And, um, I mean, that also will free up some space in the attack for Lorenzo Insigne, which is an upgrade over Jefferson Soteldo for any team in the world. Just a slight one, yeah. <laughs> it's just a mild one. So, I mean, you know, MLS rebuilds are always really hard to do and really hard mm-hmm. to predict. And there's still so many unknowns with this project. Are they a playoff team? Are they, you know, going to be back at the basement this year because they're still rebuilding for another season or two? Yeah, I mean, they that first half of the year is crucial. And I think that usually you look and you hear a player is going to be joining in July. And we've seen this recently with, you know, when, when, Rain Ro- when Wayne Rooney left Everton for DC United, we knew it would be a few months away. And so the team was able to you know, find a stopgap option who can fill his role. I don't think that there's necessarily that stopgap on the wing right now for Toronto. I think you're going to be seeing some homegrown players thrown into some big minutes that they weren't getting under Javier Perez or Chris Armas last season. Um, I think that losing Richie Larea also cuts into their versatility from out wide. I, I think that it is a team that looks kind of top heavy in terms of where its budget is. And this has always been the case with a team that spends as much as Toronto, as much as Atlanta, yeah. as much as the Galaxy, where you will have such a focus on those first three players that sometimes players four through 16 aren't of the high, the same caliber that you would see on a team like Sporting Kansas City, Minnesota United, Nashville SC, who is a little bit more of a balanced book from top to bottom. So yeah. depth will be a concern. Adjusting to Bob Bradley's system could be a concern just because it's a new head coach. It's a very different system than Chris Armas's was last year. Um, I think that uh, with the talent that they have, if they can get Insigne to be uh, in decent physical shape when he arrives and he's not going to be burnt out after such a busy past two years that he's had when you factor in the Euro tournament as well with Italy, uh, you know, he could be a player who even in just a few months of a season, because again, it's also such a front loaded season where the playoffs will start in September, October, MLS Cup will be before Halloween. And so there's less time after he arrives than we're used to as well. So it's not affecting half a season. It's probably about a third of a season. So it's a big ask. I think that the Eastern Conference does have a lot of teams that are in transition right now, either moving up the ranks or down the ranks. And so Mm -hmm. those five, six, seven spots could be up for grabs for a lot of different teams. Toronto would be one of them, but I don't think that they're necessarily going to be able to challenge this year at the top level of the Eastern Conference. I'm super interested to see how that goes, but you were interested in a team that was at the other end of the table last year, the Seattle Sounders, and I was really surprised to see them on your like list of one big questions because everybody's so sure that they're just going to you know slaughter yeah. everybody this season, and, and you're maybe not quite sure, or yeah. at least you want to know if they're going to reach their full potential. What does that mean to you? Well, I think that in past years, the favorites haven't lived up to the billing. I, I mean, last year, I think most people assumed that the that MLS Cup would be between the Columbus Crew and LAFC. And both teams yeah, ended up missing the playoffs. And that didn't work out whatsoever. So I think that the on-paper off-season champions seldom line up because there's so much pressure on them because that they know that they're the favorites. They feel like they've got the depth. 
when you enter a season feeling like you have very few vulnerabilities, the margin for error is almost lower because you're not taking risks. You have to play it safe to be able to realize your potential and your promise. And I think that if you look at the Seattle roster, they're really close to two deep at every single position. The idea that they're going to be able to pull the strings with both Albert Rusnak and Nico Lodero is terrifying if you're an opponent. Scary. That, that's, and and yeah. honestly, what's scary for me about Seattle is that last season they beat everybody without Nico Lodero, without Jordan Morris. Yeah. You know, to, to have those guys and Rusnak and like, Mm-hmm. They're just so strong everywhere. What's yeah. what's the weakness? Uh, the, the weakness, possibly expectations. I think that you saw it last year where they, they came up against an RSL side and for whatever reason they were missing the target and they weren't able to uh, cash in their chances. David Ochoa stood on his head, sure. But that's been the story of the Sounders is either they're able to put it together in a way that's maybe a little ugly but they're able to be effective when you think of their MLS Cup wins and being able to win MLS Cup without a shot on target, for example, um, <laughs> <laughs> which they've done too, to be fair. Or they have been very entertaining to watch with a soft underbelly, which is kind of what you saw during the Clint Dempsey and Obafemi Martins era. And yeah. granted, that's a Ziggy Schmidt team, but what's the difference uh, for this season? Which are they going to be? I think that people have been waiting for the Sounders to live up to their entertaining potential as well as their results potential. And they've never quite put it together in a way that's been satisfying from an outside perspective. Is this the year to do it? It looks like the roster to do it. Certainly, um, I think Brian Schmetzer enters this season with a little bit more job security than he's had in some past seasons where he should be able to do his thing. But sometimes he he gets caught into a, you know, kind of a wheel of pragmatism um, rather than flair. And that can be okay. But, uh, you know, if that pragmatism doesn't turn into goals, that's when the panicking starts. And so it's getting out of their head. It's playing their game. It's being able to enjoy it a little bit more. Maybe that's easier to do with Jordan Morris on the wing with Nico Ladera and Albert Roos not pulling the strings. Um, But just in the past, we have not seen that level of verve that maybe you would expect from the rave green. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, so another team that was good last season in a very different way and is now switching conferences because, you know, it's MLS and they got to keep us <laughs> guessing. Nashville SC uh, was, was kind of a, a dark horse last year. They played much better than a lot of people expected. Uh, do you think that'll continue in the West this season? Yeah, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how it works because I remember an interview I did with GM Mike Jacobs where he had described the Western Conference as being more tranquilo than the Eastern Conference and <laughs> thought that it was a more lack. That was the word he used, I promise. And it was the, the lackadaisical approach to possession, to progressive passing, to I think that he's pretty much call, saying that the Western Conference constantly plays in Texas in the middle of July. And that's yeah. the rate of games. And that is a big part of the Western Conference, to be fair, um, with so many teams in the southern half of the country. But uh, will they have to change their method? Of play, they've been a very high, you know, confident, high-pressing team. A team that wants to progress quickly when they do have the ball. They've wanted to play on the counter. They wanted to enable Hani Mukhtar to 
pull the strings in transition rather than having him work in set plays because in 2020 that didn't really work for them. And if you're constantly playing opponents that are not going to match you with similar energy where you're able to exploit a backline that maybe their line of engagement is higher, then mm-hmm. it becomes a difficulty. It, it becomes more difficult to break down a low block. And there are a lot of teams in the Western Conference that play with a low block or played with a low block in 2021. So the conference change is more significant than just where they'll, you know, where their Forest Heineken rivalry week matchup is going to come from. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that they could run into some, you know, some, some differences in ideology with their opponents. I think that they will have players who are very used to playing in the Western Conference. Walker Zimmerman, of course, with Dallas and LAFC. Um, Dax McCarty hasn't in a long time since Dallas, but Anibal Godoy played for San Jose. So they do have some crucial players with experience playing in those Texan summers. But it'll be interesting to see if they're able to continue this gradual upward trajectory and become, I think, if they were going to continue, they should be among the contenders to finish in the top three in the West and be a true MLS Cup hopeful. Um, But we'll see if this throws them off the path. I never really thought about MLS in like climate determinism terms, but I really like that. I'm gonna I'm gonna start like framing every game that way. <laughs> so speaking of Texas Summers, the uh, the Houston Dynamo are also on your list, and right. you you put a pun in there, so I'm gonna read this question out loud. Thank Can you. Paolo Nagamura restoke the dynamism in Houston? <laughs> <laughs> this is why they don't usually let me write my headlines, but when I have to come up with 28 mini headlines, finally I have the chance to just prove why I should not be given this much power. <laughs> but yes. Right. Tell Paolo me about Nakamura. Nakamura. Probably the most surprising head coaching appointment of the offseason. That's no disrespect to Paulo Nakamura, but I think that when you look at the coaches who came in, Ezra Hendrickson was someone who had been seen as deserving of a shot for a while, top assistant under some of the most respected coaches in Major League Soccer, long overdue. Same sort of thing with Pat Noonan, same thing with Josh Wolf last year, if you're going back to Austin FC's appointment. Paulo Nakamura had been working for four years, leading Sporting Kansas City's reserve team. And so he wasn't building his own tactical identity. He wasn't controlling how his team played. He wasn't even necessarily controlling which players started. It was checking in with Peter Vermees and his staff to make sure that they were in lockstep tactically, but also getting the players who needed minutes on the field so that it could help the first team. It was all about the first team. And that was not something that he disliked. It was something that he saw as a very crucial part of the role. He didn't see it as a slight to him and his coaching, having spoken with him in January for a Q&A with The Athletic, which is linked to in this piece as well. But he does want to branch out. He doesn't want to just play in a 4-3-3 where the front line presses a lot and the midfield and the defense kind of holds back in a lower block, as has been the case with Peter Vermees' sides in the last few years, which, by the way, has also been the issue with Peter Vermees' sides over the last few years. Um, He wants to have a sort of positional play model. He wants to bring what he considers a more Brazilian flair into the game. He wants to be able to trust his players with the ball. He wants to control possession, not play on the counter all the time. And so as a result... What he's saying he wants to do is exciting. What he's saying he wants to do is very different than what you've seen from Houston over the last six, seven years between Tab Ramos and Wilmer Cabrera and I guess Owen Coyle, if you want to go back that far. Um, It's a very different sort of ideology from what you were used to seeing and certainly what you would have seen with the USL reserve side. So um, there's a lot of of potential. Every every coach comes into the job saying, I want to play attractive attacking soccer. Like that's like a mandatory line at the opening press conference. The question is, does he have the players to do it? And you know, even if he does, how long does it take to kind of turn that team in a totally different direction? Yeah, I'm interested in this. I'm interested in this question about, about like what kind of coaching resume leads to success because is it better to have been the main guy at, you know, a team off on your own or is it better to learn from who I think is one of the best coaches in MLS, Peter Vermes? Uh, you know, just getting that direct day in, day out experience, watching how he works. 
to me, it seems like that can be really good preparation for, for taking over a team. Absolutely. And I think that that would also give him a perfect vantage point into what has worked and not worked from a man management side. Um, certainly having played for Vermees as well, he will be very familiar with the other side of that dynamic, which I think is pretty valuable insight as well. I mean, as he approached that job, but also as he comes into this job, I think that he has had that sort of apprenticeship that you would look for. Um, but the question is, when you're hiring him, you're looking at dossiers, you're looking at binders and PowerPoints and prezzies and whatever, and he's going through and saying, this is how I want to play, but he doesn't have the footage to back it up necessarily. You saw mm. it a lot with the engine room. I think that he did have a more active midfield trio often in terms of closing down opponents, lines of engagement, picking passes, rotation out of roles instead of just keeping him in a kind of fixed sort of trident. So I think that he did take some risks with his midfield that maybe he got away with. Maybe Peter wasn't watching the midfield or whatever the case was. But um, there's a little bit of a hint of what he wants to do if you... Um, if you're really having a slow night and want to pull up some Sporting Kansas City 2 highlights from 2021, <laughs> I've done the I'll work for you. i weekend for that. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Who needs to start the new season when you can watch last season? Um, <laughs> that's basically the theme of content in 2020, wasn't it? Um, but all the same, I, I think that he is a very intriguing coaching prospect. He is a personality that you could have, just watching him play, you would have thought he could have been a very good, fiery, motivational manager. So it's exciting to see this next generation of MLS players rising into these roles. We just have no idea how this team's going to play. And to your point, if they have the talent on the roster to be able to execute effectively what he wants to do. So I don't necessarily see this as Houston coming back and rising up the ranks and becoming, uh, you know, one of the contenders as they once were a decade and a half ago, two decades ago almost now. But um, I think that just being watchable <laughs> would be a very good first step over what we've seen in some of the last five, six years. It would certainly be a start. So talent on the roster matters, and we've got some fun talent coming into MLS. We've talked about Insignia, now let's talk about Shakiri. Uh, the mm -hmm. Chicago Fire, are they going to be good this year? Are they going to be fun? Are they going to be both? Are they going to be neither? Tell me, tell me what to expect from this team, because I have no idea. I feel for Jaden Shakiri because I think most off-seasons, he would have won the off-season like biggest star, young, this is the profile of player that Don Garber wants to promote as why this is a league of choice, someone who's still playing in Europa League with Olympic Lyon, someone who just moved from Liverpool over the summer, um, Champions League winner, all of this stuff. That's, that's the sort of resume they would want. He is not Lorenzo Insigne, unfortunately. But I think in a sense, that relieves some pressure on what he wants to do and by and large, historically, Sheridan Shakiri has played very well when he's able to relax in his game. Yes, he will still be the guy in Chicago. It's not like he's going to walk in and look at the, the locker room and say, OK, well, I've got a seed to pick your player. Right. I, I think that he's he's going to be the guy. He's given the 10 shirt. He's not wearing 29 for the first time in a long time. But um, they've made some really fun signings. They've they've really come into the offseason. They've spent much more money than they have in years past. Credit to new ownership on that front. Credit to them for wanting to make Soldier Field uh, a marquee attraction in the summer as well. And now that they're going to have more control over Soldier Field, it appears with the Bears moving into their own venue in the coming years, it's an even more exciting prospect. So, you know, I think that you look at, you know, Aro Torres coming in from Liga Emekis, one of the top-rated young wingers that the league had. Him coming in could be... Um, as important of a signing in terms of the direction of the league and its ability to pull players. If you're bringing in the top young Mexican talent, I think that that almost is more important than being able to pluck a player who's age 31 coming from the Europa League. So they could be a lot of fun. Casper Shabilko has been a very dependable target. He's been someone who can score goals, maybe not as many goals as Philadelphia would have liked, which is why they moved him on for over a million dollars of allocation money. But if he can forge a quick connection with Shakiri in particular and with Torres and, 
Um, you know, they've got some good defensive reinforcement as well with uh, Rafael Chicos, who's been in Bundesliga promotion relegation battles with Köln over the last few years. Um, it's a better roster. I, I think it's undeniable that the talent on this roster already dwarfs what they had under Rafael Wicke, much to his dismay, I'm sure, over the last two yeah. years. Um, so that feels very hard done. But I, I think, again, Ezra Hendrickson is someone that we were looking at in MLS circles, wondering when he would get his shot for multiple reasons, of course. But um, I, I think that Chicago could be a really good fit for him. And um, uh, just like Houston, if they're fun, that's a start. And yeah. I think that with each conference, you do have three or four teams that actively look not good right now, especially the Eastern Conference, if I'm honest. And so if Chicago can get past that bottom tier, which they've been in for the last few years and, you know, be ahead of, I mean, Cincinnati and Charlotte and Miami this year is going to be in a massive season of transition, um, just as they got the inaugural roster that really set them back, uh, both on the field and then also in terms of some rule breaking. Um, as long as you can get into that next tier where you're in 10th, 9th, 8th, and you're pushing for a playoff spot, that's a much better place to be for relevance sake. And then you can really build off of that in 2023 if you weren't able to get over the hump. To me, fun, messy, and not very good is like the platonic ideal of MLS, and every team should aspire to it. Uh, if, if Chicago can hit that bar this year, <laughs> I'm into it. I completely uh, agree. Okay, last one on your list here. Uh, Montreal. Sorry, Club de Foot Montreal. Uh, Montreal no Foot Club. Impact. That's right. The Montreal Foot <laughs> That's Club. That's right. Yep. Uh, yep. You are specifically interested in one player on this roster. Tell me who it is and why. Well, first, I, I want to start by saying I am very excited about Montreal Foot Club this year. I am very excited about them. I think that they are probably my dark horse pick in the Eastern Conference that has a chance of like making a playoff run this year. I like the way that they're built. I like how they handled the adversity last year of Thierry Henry resigning at the start of preseason. I thought Wilfred Nancy did incredibly well to galvanize his team and keep them motivated and competitive. The player yeah, they I'm were sneaky good under they under were Nancy, sneaky right? good. Yeah. yeah, they were. They were like deep in the playoff push um, throughout the season. Ultimately, fell short down the stretch and fell to I think tenth. But they were. A major factor in that playoff push and they did it without Mason Toy for the second half of the season and, and he's the player that I think now I covered pretty closely during my final year as a beat writer covering Minnesota United he was a young player rising up the ranks finally getting starting minutes in 2019 and he has always looked like the profile of ideal striker especially like a young American striker and so um, he's in his fifth year he had worked with Adrian Heath and Thierry Henry, two storied former strikers, but it's Wilfred Nancy who's gotten the best out of him. And last year, actually, if you're looking at non-penalty expected goals per 90, Mason Toy had a higher rate than Ricardo Pepe, than Daryl DK, and then Jesus Ferreira. So it was about 900 minutes, and it was a .46 rate, but he was scoring goals that he didn't score in the past. In the past, a typical Mason Toy goal was a goal that you would have never tried in FIFA. Uh, where you're, you're shooting it from 25 yards out, you're on your weak foot, and you just kind of curl it into the you know far right corner. It's the sort of thing you would do to infuriate your, infuriate your uh, dorm neighbors. But he was doing that for fun. But he wasn't able to necessarily get the movement down to be able to get into the box for those easier goals, for the goals that you would expect to see from a striker maybe getting in position for a header on a cross or on a corner kick. Um, he was doing much more of that work before his injury last year. It's a shoulder injury, so you don't necessarily worry about long-term impacts of his agility. You don't have the same sort of concerns you would have if it was an ACL or if it was an ankle or a hamstring. So that's also encouraging. Um, it'll make muscling against defenders harder, but 
So when when you say that he's you know he's got the ideal striker profile mm-hmm. or, or you know kind of best young American striker, you're really describing a profile that's kind of only emerged last season in in limited mm-hmm. minutes, and it wasn't something that we had seen before. Uh, how how did this like suddenly all come together for him in Montreal? Is he getting a different type of service? Is it yeah. really just Nancy teaching him to move in ways that he just didn't learn in Minnesota? In a way, I think it almost was a difference in urgency. Adrian Heath's been a coach who loves trusting veterans. And if something isn't working, he's going to go call up Fernando Adi in the month of August as he's playing pickup in the NPSL and ask him if he wants to come on for two months, or he's going to trade for Kai Kamara uh, to try to you know, stop the bleeding, or he's going to you know sign another um, you know, a 29 to 31 year old striker from another league to try to make that the guy. And so for Mason Toy, Every time he would get a run of games where he'd score, let's say, three goals in five, he'd feel confident if he had one really bad game, he was back to the bench and he was getting 20 minutes a game for the foreseeable future. Under Thierry Henry, it was about half a season after his trade, but he was starting to get more minutes because Montreal Impact, aside from Romel Kyoto, didn't necessarily have a goal scorer in their lineup. Last year, he and Kyoto worked really well together. Um, and so I think between having a, a pretty ideal strike partner toward the top of the field that he was able to work with, um, someone else who was able to keep honest, but also a coach who was willing to give him the minutes um, to make those mistakes, to figure out his movements and to know that he could be back in the lineup as long as he was still executing, um, just maybe not having the end product. That's better than the situation he was in with a more veteran expectant coach. He also, to be fair, last year was working with George Mihaljevic, who I think is probably the best um, playmaker that he had worked with because he never really overlapped with Emmanuel Reynoso in Minnesota. Actually, he didn't at all. So um, yeah. I think that a lot of factors came together in Montreal that worked really well for him. The change of scenery for a young player sometimes just helps just in the sense of, I thought I was going to be the guy there. It didn't work out. Now I have another chip on my shoulder and someone I need to prove wrong. So I don't know if there's some of that. Um, no one believes in us energy that Minnesota loves so much. That's also a Mason toy to this day. <laughs> it's like the club's identity, yeah. It's the whole identity at this point, John. Um, <laughs> like the official official motto of the club. They should put it on the shirts. And the scar- hold up your scarves that just say, <laughs> like MLS.com uh, hates us. Yeah, it's... Um, <laughs> Yeah, uh, funny little club, but I think Mason Toy is perfectly positioned. There is sort of a gap right now in the hierarchy of young American strikers with Ricardo Pepe and Daryl DK leaving the league. Um, Jeremy Obobese is another player that people will be looking at, hoping for um, more goal-scoring output, as we've been waiting for since he entered the league in 2017. But um, I think Mason Toy is in a very, very good position to be able to do just that. Cool. Okay, so... I personally have been working on uh, fan preseason rankings uh, for the last yes, day or two, trying yes, to get yeah. as many people to like. So if, if you're hearing this and the season hasn't started yet, uh, please go on to my Twitter, the Athletic Soccer's Twitter, and find the survey and fill it out because uh, I need to get a lot of rankings. Jeff, yeah, we'll, I, we'll put I in have the show seen notes. rankings. Yeah. Yes, you have. Uh, I, I'm not going to make you rattle off all 28, but tell me who the top like three or four teams are this season. Like who's you know, who's going to be really good, and and also who's going to be really terrible? It was really funny. I almost DM'd you when I submitted because I forgot to check the box to send my own results to me because I would have loved that, so I didn't have to go back and do the exercise again. So if you can send me that, that would be fantastic. But I can tell you who the top teams in each conference should be. All right, um, all right. But I will want that so I can tweet that out and take some heat off Andrew Weeby. Poor Andrew Weeby. His mentions this week have been <laughs> a mess for tweeting his standings on Monday. 
Um, he lives for that stuff. He does. He truly does. Uh, I mean, in the East, it's kind of the same big three as last year. Honestly, I think that you're looking at New England, New York City, and Philadelphia should be back mm-hmm. in contention for those top three. I don't think you've seen enough from Columbus to suggest that they can make a quick bounce back. I think Atlanta might need a little bit more time to really um, you know, jump into that echelon, especially if you're looking at, say, their midfield and their defense. I think that there's some gaps there that still need to be filled, and the attack still hasn't played together yet with Tiago Almada um, and Luis Arujo. So I think that they do have some work to be done there. Orlando doesn't necessarily... They look like they're going to be a transitionary team leaving DK and Nani behind and then bringing in some younger players. But I think that you look at New England, the continuity, bringing in Omar and Sebastian Legette and Josie to be able to come in as veterans that Bruce can trust who maybe will be able to raise the level of the team off the bench compared to what they were doing last year. New York City didn't but, really... But losing Matt Turner in New England, which I think is a pretty big deal for them. It is a big deal for them, but they do have time to figure out a solution. They haven't rushed to create a forced goalkeeper controversy for the first half of the season, which I think was wise. I would imagine yeah. that you'll see them more active at the very beginning of the summer window or maybe trying to line up a target who will then join ahead of time, just get that transfer locked in, um, but not have the player join for the first half of the year. I think that while that hurts from a trading perspective, that might help from just being able to keep the peace and sometimes... That's the trade-off you have to make. Um, Philadelphia completely changed their attack. Uh, they brought in uh, Mikael Ure, who's a Danish international now, made his debut really, at age Really good Danish player, apparently. Really good, like, yeah. 11 goals in 16. Yeah. yeah, he won player of the year, with, um, I think, with Bronby last year. So uh, if you're going to replace Shabilko, they're hoping that he's going to be someone with a little bit more output so that they're not playing these close games that they constantly get caught in. If you think of the first round of the playoffs last year, for example, uh, New York Red Bulls, I don't think, had much business keeping them as close as they did, but uh, they were very difficult to break down. The press was relentless, and Philly didn't have a goal scorer who could take over. So they're hoping they have that guy. Uh, Julian Carranza could be a very, very good, sneaky good pickup, actually, uh, bringing him in on loan with purchase option from Inter-Miami, where he was never getting that chance to prove that he had the potential which he had when he came in in 2020. Um, and, you know, I think this league loves a young Argentine. And so if you're able to bring one into Philadelphia. And an old Argentine. Any kind of Argentine. <laughs> if you can have an Ar- Did you know that there are more Argentines who played in MLS last year than Canadians? I'm not surprised by that at all. Not one I think bit. there are clubs who literally will just recruit you for having an Argentinian passport. <laughs> I think so. It feels like it, doesn't it? The second most popular country for MLS players last year. Um, only behind Americans, of course. And uh, New York City didn't lose... Much beyond James Sands, which I'm not saying that's a small loss, but Keaton Parks, I think, played much better last year than people give credit for using that vaunted goals added metric. Um, Yeah. yeah, yeah. If you're familiar with it. Uh, So (laughs) there's, uh, he ranked eighth. Slightly familiar. He ranked eighth he's, among. I, I think I think he's like the best American in goals added, or at least the best American midfielder in goals added over the yeah. last few seasons. You know, he yeah. really stands out for his progressive passing, his progressive carries. Like he helps the team get the ball upfield in a way that uh, you know no other player for that team, or really for the national team, a lot of times does. <laughs> right. He also stands out because he's very tall. Uh, and <laughs> he is we haven't tall. And we haven't talked about that. Game 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 for him. I love I love a gangly player. It just it looks so out of place on a soccer field, but he plays it so well. For a player with that much gangle, uh, he uses his body <laughs> incredibly well, um, and that's commendable. Tyus Magno is someone that we have been very excited to see more of since he joined New York City FC, and I think that with um, uh, Ismail Tajuri Shroudi leaving as well as Jesus Medina, he should have more options on the wing, so he could be someone who's more dynamic than the wingers that they had last year, uh, which is a scary opposition or proposition if you are. Um, an Eastern Conference rival. But I think those three look in the East. I'll just go really quickly through the West because I know that we've been going for a half hour here. Um, 
I think I see Colorado taking a step back. They lost a lot of crucial players over the last year between Sam Vines, Cole Bassett, Kellen Acosta, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that they necessarily made the reinforcement additions to be able to make up for their absences. So I could see them stepping back. Obviously, I expect oh, they won a Super Bowl though. They did win the Super Bowl. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Who needs uh, to invest in the MLS team? <laughs> that was like the saddest congratulation tweet, by the way, I think I've ever seen. It was like, I just, I could hear, don't you forget about me playing in the background as I was scrolling through my feed that night. Um, Sporting Kansas City looks like they're ready for a regression too, and losing Alan Polito certainly doesn't help. Portland Timbers, a uh, lot of questions uh, off the field that they need to answer, and so the on-field almost feels secondary. And how much will the aging core of Diego Chara and Sebastian Blanco be able to continue to defy father time? Uh, Nashville, I think, should be joining in the, the upper echelon of the um, Western Conference this year. And if you look beyond that, it's wide open. I think the LAFC and the Galaxy have a really good chance to, to leap from being just outside the playoffs into the top four right away. Um, Douglas Costa feels like, a, from my perspective, a pretty unnecessary risk, uh, just given his track record recently with Gremio. But um, if you can get him uh, to carry the ball and take some pressure off of Chicharito and actually get him to facilitate uh, instead of just dominate possession, um, it could be a really good fit for them. And he certainly will be a player of the caliber uh, where he will respect Chicharito Hernandez and he will want to work with him. And so I think that usually, I mean, you saw this with the, the Galaxy during the Bruce Arena era. Sometimes you need multiple stars to be able to keep each other in check. Um, if you think of like Beckham and Keane and Donovan, uh, Robbie Keane was just crucial to that whole thing working. Um, yeah. And so maybe maybe Chicharito can fill that role as well. All right, last question. The most competitive race in MLS. Can newcomer Charlotte FC unseat <laughs> three-time champion FC Cincinnati and win the wooden spoon this year? Uh, they can and they will. Uh, oh. <laughs> that's the it's the only trophy in MLS I feel very confident in predicting. Um, it's bleak, man. It is bleak right now. Um, Estamos Unidos, right? Estamos Unidos. I, I think that uh, <laughs> which worked fantastically as a lead, by the way, for a piece that I wrote, uh, which we discussed on yesterday's podcast on Thursday's episode. Um, I had discussed it with myself. I didn't discuss it with anyone, actually. I monologued at people for 15 minutes about the different roster-building approaches expansion teams have taken. Charlotte's roster-building approach seems to have been forget to build a roster until two (laughs) months before and then panic and get whoever you can fit and just acquire as many international slots as you need to make it work. Um, It doesn't look terribly coherent. The coach is clearly not happy with it, which is never a good sign. I can't remember a coach entering a season so unhappy with a new roster like you see it with Matias Almeida this year, but that's because he lost so many of his players. In theory, he yeah. should have had a lot more influence. Miguel Angel Ramirez should have had much more influence over this roster. And if he didn't, that's a major problem as well. Um, Cincinnati, meanwhile, they didn't necessarily bring in a ton of good players, but Alec Kahn's already the best goalkeeper in franchise history. I think that that's a pretty good start. Um, low bar. <laughs> very low bar. Shout out Kenneth Vermeer. Um, Brenner is in his second season now, and I think that they will expect much bigger things from him. Lucho Acosta looked, I think, a little bit more bought into the Cincy project than some people expected ahead of last year, myself included. So that's a good sign in terms of who will be pulling the strings. Uh, Ray Gaddis came out of retirement, and even if he can't be the starting right back, which they need him to be, but even if he can't be week in, week out, he is one of the highest character guys that MLS has seen in the past decade. And so um, that's a good piece to have in a team in transition, Pat Noonan and uh, Chris Albright trying to bring some of that Philly um, quiet success ethos uh, can only be good. So I think it's a two horse race again, unless one of the Texan teams, Dallas, Houston, Austin falls into that level. But I think that with the quality of the top of the East compared to the bottom, that's a lot of drop points compared to the worst teams in the Western Conference where maybe we'll get a draw out of a loss instead. Um, so I do think it will be one of those two. And I would feel very confident saying it'll be Charlotte FC. 
I'll be rooting for him. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for this preview, Jeff. This has been super informative. I feel caught up on the league. I really look forward to reading the uh, One Big Question article when it drops. Uh, thanks again, man. Yeah, thanks for joining. This show is produced by Mike Zimmerman with help from John Hayes. You can get ad-free versions of the show by subscribing to The Athletic, and you can subscribe for $1 a month for six months by going to theathletic.com slash soccer every day. Thank you so much for listening, and happy soccer to you all.